This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast. Visit us on the web at qalaminstitute.org and join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash qalaminstitute. Bismillah wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een Inshallah, picking up from where we left off in our series, um, on our sessions on the uh, prophetic biography, Asiratun Nabawiyah, the life of the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Last time where we left off, we talked about the teenage years of the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Basically the early years of his adolescence, the early part of his teen, teens. And what we talked about was how the Prophet of Allah ﷺ grew up in a community, in a society as a young person. And he had uh, similar experiences to that any young person would growing up. Meaning there was a certain element of family, uh, there was some socializing, meaning he of course had other youth around him that he was growing up around. And even to where a young man starts to want to take on some responsibility, maybe help out the family. And that was also something the Prophet ﷺ was involved in. What we talked about last time was how the trials and tribulations of youth and the temptation of youth is something that's been there from day one, from the beginning of time. And so at that time in the pre-Islamic era, when you have widespread corruption and widespread social uh, evils, so the Prophet of Allah ﷺ was of course tested with that as well. But we saw how not only was it his own... Uh, amazing character that the Prophet ﷺ naturally just did not have any inclination towards engaging in those activities that other youth were engaging in. But we also saw divine intervention. We also saw, saw how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala divinely arranged for the protection of the Prophet ﷺ from engaging in such social evils or, or such type of, uh, you know, activity that might exist in a youth culture, uh, in such a society. Very similar to what we have today. Now, talking about the mid-teens of the Prophet ﷺ, when the Prophet ﷺ, the books of Sirah, the books of history mentioned that when he was about 15 years old, and so now the Prophet ﷺ is moving further and further into adulthood. He's a young adult at this time. The Prophet ﷺ had a couple of very, very profound experiences that had a huge impact on him and gave him the very unique perspective that we would see later manifest itself within the life and the teachings and the preaching of the Prophet ﷺ. One of those very profound experiences that the Prophet ﷺ had was that when he was about 15 years old, now there are two narrations here. Ibn Ishaq rahimahullah in his classical book of Sirah, he mentions that the Prophet ﷺ was 20 years old, while Ibn Hisham and other historians mention that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ was 14 or 15 years old. The reconciliation between the two narrations is the fact that at the beginning of this experience, the Prophet ﷺ was about 14 and 15 years old, and this basically continued until the age of 20. And the situation that I'm talking about is that there was a war that occurred at that time. In Hijaz, in Arabia, a war occurred, and that war was is known by the name of Harb, Harbul Fijar. Harbul Fijar, which literally translates to the sacrilegious war. And I realize that's kind of a fancy word, but basically fijar means something that is 
inappropriate, something that is, like, like we say fujur, something that is inappropriate, is in violation of ethics. And in our case, Islamically, when we use the word fujur or fijar, it would mean in violation of the religion. So this harbul fijar was a war that was in violation of ethics and morals and the religion of the people of that time. Now you can imagine, we've spoken at length about the immorality and the lack of any type of religious structure or construct that existed already at that time. For a, for a war to be so sacrilegious, for a war to be so blasphemous, that even the people of that time would call it harbul fijar, you can imagine what the nature of that battle or that war, that situation was. What basically transpired at that time was, there was a man from Quraysh, there was a man from Quraysh, his name is also mentioned in uh, some of the historic narrations, that this man of Quraysh, who I believe his name was Urwa al-Rihal. Urwa al-Rahal. He was called Urwa al-Rahal. This man, he ended up getting into a conflict, an attack, with a man, another man of another tribe by the name of or rather, excuse me, Al-Barad, who was from Quraysh, he got into a conflict and a fight with Urwatul Rahal. So Barad, this man by the name of Barad, belonged to Quraysh. Kinana, Banu Kinana, he belonged to Quraysh. And he got into a conflict with a man by the name of Urwatul Rahal, who was from the tribes of Hawazin. From the tribes of Hawazin, who were other powerful tribes of that time. They were basically tribes located in Ta'if. And if you go back and you look into the history of the region, even the Qur'an makes reference, it talks about Al-Qaryataini Azim. It talks about the two big cities at that time. You know, when we think of Arabia, we think of the two big cities. What comes to our mind right now, it's Mecca and Medina, right? But that's from a religious perspective. But you have to understand, Medina pre-Islamically, Yathrib was a small little town full of a bunch of farmers. Nothing more than that. The two major cities of that time were Mecca and Ta'if. And that's why when the Prophet ﷺ felt that he had exhausted all of his means in Mecca to preaching to the people later on in the seerah, which we'll talk about at length when that time comes, the Prophet's first attempt to try to preach outside of Mecca or try to establish or find a base or support outside of Mecca was the city of Ta'if, the journey to Ta'if, happened long before the Prophet ﷺ became interested in the prospects of the city of Yathrib, which would later become Medina. So Ta'if and Mecca, these were the two major cities and the two most powerful tribes lived in these areas. In, in Mecca, of course, you had Quraysh. And in Ta'if, you had the tribes of Hawazin and Thaqif. So a man from Quraysh got into a personal conflict with a man from the tribes of Hawazin. And even the narrations, the historical narrations talk about what was the nature of the conflict, that basically the man from Quraysh, Barad, he had some type of a, um, he, he had some customers, he had some clientele for business. And the man from Hawazin, Urwa, he also approached those same clients, those same customers. And he was trying to cut a deal with them. He was trying to give them a better deal, trying to create some competition. Barad became extremely offended when he went to his customers as regularly scheduled. And then they said, you know what, we're getting a better deal from this guy named Urwa from over here. So Barad was very, very upset. He was very angry. While traveling one time, he coincidentally, he comes across Urwa on the travels as well. 
And they end up introducing uh, each other, they end up introducing themselves to each other. And he says, you're Urwa from Hawazin? He said, yeah, that's me. He goes, haven't you been trying to do customers with these, these people? Haven't you been trying to do business with these customers of mine? And he said, yeah, I offered them a deal. What's the problem with that? You know, it's a free market. So what if I tried to do business with someone? And so they kind of exchanged some words and they kind of went about their own ways. But they were camped out, they were staying at a very similar, same region. You know, like when travelers and these traveling businessmen would travel, there were certain spots where they would kind of camp out, like a rest area or a truck stop or something like that in our times. So they were stopped over in that place. Barad sees that Urwa is kind of off his guard, he's kind of not paying attention, he's doing something, and Barad is just fuming the entire time. So he sees an opportunity, he goes and he attacks him, they end up getting into a little bit of a physical fight and a confrontation, and in that physical fight and confrontation, Barad ends up killing Urwa. And not only does he end up killing him, but this ends up happening in these sacred months the four sacred months that we know about. So this ends up happening in one of those sacred months, in Dhul Qa'dah. So this occurs in Dhul Qa'dah, one of the sacred months. So there's two things. First of all, you have one man of a major tribe killing another man of another major tribe without, you know, um, unjustly. He ends up killing him unjustly, which is obviously a problem and it's wrong. Secondly, you, he kills him during the actual sacred months. So this is why it's called Harbul Fijar. Because it was very, very sacrilegious, it was very blasphemous, it was very inappropriate how this whole situation came down. Now when the people of Hawazin get the news that one of their very respected, respectable businessmen, a respectable member of their community, has been killed by this man from Quraysh, they're infuriated. So they immediately, you know, get a little bit of an army together. They gather their soldiers and their men together, and they start marching towards Mecca, towards Quraysh. That we demand retribution. Now Barad goes back, and um, the Barad goes back to Mecca to Quraysh, and the news basically reaches what he's done. Some people in Quraysh are very, very uh, upset that Barad has done this, some people in Mecca are very upset because he's created a problem where there was none. But nevertheless, now it's all about honor and dignity and tribe and etc. So again, this adds to the fijar, this adds to the sacrilegiousness of this war. That even the people, the tribe didn't have the sensibility to say, okay, somebody did wrong, why don't we offer him up for retribution? Why don't we offer him up as a consequence? Or, you know, why don't we try to pay the blood money, etc. They take it personally and they say, no, how dare they think they can march our way and they think that they can attack us? Who do these people think they are? Don't they know who we are? We're Quraysh, we're the keepers of the haram, etc., etc., etc. So now they form their own little army, they get their soldiers together, and now they march out towards, um, to fight the tribes, uh, the tribe of Hawazin. They end up meeting, and they, there's a bit of a stalemate, and they basically have a little bit of a standoff. Around this time, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ was about 14 to 15 years old. When this happened, they kind of stop there, some negotiations start to take place. Neither tribe really wants to engage in full-scale war because they realize what's at stake. Alright, these are two very, very big tribes that are the you know, uh, centers of business. You know, Ta'if was considered like the vacation spot. 
Ta'if was the vacation spot. It's where everybody went to vacation. Even when you go till today, Ta'if has nicer weather. Ta'if has the mountains and the valleys and has very nice, you know, uh, scenery and things like that. So Ta'if was the vacation spot. So they weren't in any, you know, they weren't interested in getting involved in any type of full-scale war with another tribe. Quraysh is the center of business, the keepers of the haram, they host, you know, hundreds of thousands of people from all over the, all over Arabia, you know, every single year at the season of Hajj. They weren't interested in getting into this situation. So it's as if it, they just kind of stopped there, set up camp against each other, and the narrations go on to say that this conflict remained for about five years. For five years they had this kind of a standoff, like, like something very reminiscent to what we would remember as the Cold War. You know, where you have two major tribes, or in our case it was two major nations, kind of facing off against each other, kind of having a standoff against each other, but not really engaging in any type of actual warfare. There's no battle that's taking place. So it was this type of a Cold War that set up and that they had this situation for about five years. And what's very interesting is that the narrations mentioned that there were only five days of actual fighting during those five years. There were only five days in which battle, warfare actually uh, ensued, battle actually ensued during these five, during these four years, uh, five years. There was only five days. And in fact, these, um, these were so, uh, these days were marked in history because imagine for five years having a standoff, two major nations having a standoff, but only actually fighting in the battlefield for five days. So even those days were given names. Even those days were given names. Um, Yom, one, the first one was called Yom Shamta. The second day was called Yom Al-Abla. Um, and both of these happened near Ukad, which was an area outside of Mecca where major markets used to take place. The, basically festivals and festivities used to take place at the, at the place of Ukad. And so two of these bat- battles took place near there. The third one was called Yom Sharb. Um, and that was the day of the most major battle. The fiercest day of fighting was the third day of fighting called Yom Sharb. And after that there were a couple of more days that where battle took place, fighting took place. So these were five days that actual fighting took place. And this was throughout the late teen years of the Prophet ﷺ. So much like people who grew up, you know, in, in a similar situation, you know, when, when people grow up during tensions between two countries and they grow up during that time, there's certain sentiments that are developed, there's a certain culture that is developed. You know, I, I don't know how many people are old enough to remember, but if you were in the United States and you were, you know, of adult age during the actual years of the Cold War, it was a very interesting culture at that time. You know, there, there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a lot of culture, it even, you even see it in, in entertainment and things like that, that that same rhetoric and that same culture is established and it almost creates a mindset for those people that grow up during that time. So the Prophet ﷺ is growing up during this time where he sees this basically standoff and so there's a lot of tribal pride, there's a lot of nationalistic pride and a lot of rhetoric that was very popular in the culture, in the entertainment, the media, which was poetry during that 
time when the Prophet ﷺ was growing up to become a man. He was in his late teen years. He was basically becoming a man. He grew up during that time. And so the Prophet ﷺ was able to kind of sit back again because of his own nature where the Prophet ﷺ was very mature for his age. He was very thoughtful. He was very intelligent. And he was very reflective. And he didn't have a lot of interest in these types of things. He would often not go to the festivals and the festivities and these things because he didn't approve of a lot of the types of activities people would engage in. Not just purely the worship of idols, but even the drinking and the partying and the singing and dancing. The Prophet ﷺ didn't have a keen interest in these things. In fact, he had an aversion to these things. So he would often stay back from these things. He would look at them and they made an impact or left an impression on him to where he disapproved of a lot of these practices. And he would often be in deep thought or deep reflection even as a young man on how to avoid these types of things or how we can remove these elements from society. So the Prophet ﷺ is growing up during this time of war and battle. And he's seeing and he's observing the impact that a war-like situation has on a society and has on a people. And he obviously sees how this is very negative has a negative influence on the people. Similarly, the nationalistic pride or the tribal pride that was being instigated within people, he again sees that and sees the problem with that. Now when the battle actually happened on those five days, remember now the Prophet ﷺ is an older teenager. And in that particular culture and time, even in our age, you know, 18 years old, 18 year olds get recruited into the military, you know, uh, by the thousands. So, and in that time, uh, those day, that day and age, 13, 14 years old meant you were old enough to take place in battle. You were in fact expected to go, try to go out to battle and it was a sign of your manhood and you were supposed to and you're supposed to love your tribe and you're supposed to be passionate about supporting the dignity and honor of your forefathers. Of course, this was a, a bunch of nonsense, but nevertheless it was sold like this. So the Prophet ﷺ did not have any interest in actually going out to the battlefield, but his uncles who were going out to the battle field said, you got to come with us. You're old enough to take part. What are people going to say? What are people going to, you know, assume? You know, people are not going to like the fact that one of our, you know, young men, the grandson of Abdul Muttalib, who is the greatest leader in the history of Quraysh, our, our, our father, the greatest leader in the history of our people, Abdul Muttalib, his own grandson will not take place in the battle. How dare, how could that happen? What will people say? What, what an aib, what an ar, right? What a, what, a, what a disgrace to our family. So you gotta come, you gotta come, you gotta come. And they forced him to basically go out. And so the Prophet ﷺ was basically able to, you know, avoid going out to the battlefield the first two days of fighting. But the third day of fighting, Yawm al-Sharb, which was the most fiercest day of fighting, he was forced to go out with them. And it actually talks about this. Now even this is disputed whether the Prophet ﷺ went out there or not. Some scholars, some uh, you know, scholars of Sirah or Hadith have disputed that no, 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 the Prophet ﷺ never went out. The vast majority of the books of Sirah make it very clear that the Prophet ﷺ was forced to go out and his uncles forcefully took him with them out to the battlefield. But what the Prophet ﷺ did out there at the battlefield is very interesting. So the Prophet ﷺ pleaded and spoke to his uncles because he again saw that this was not the defend this was not in defense of truth or justice or the rights of people in fact if anything the prophet was very conscious of the fact that we're in the wrongdoing quraish is in the wrong here one of our guys killed somebody from their people 
And instead of owning up and fessing up and handing him over, or at least offering the blood money, the dia, instead of doing that, we're out here fighting for honor and dignity. And it's been years now, nobody even remembers why we're fighting. This is nonsense, this is silly. So now that the Prophet ﷺ was forced to go out to the battlefield, what did he do? And this is from the honor and the dignity of the Prophet ﷺ. That the Prophet ﷺ never unjustly raised a sword or arms against anyone. That this is from the dignity of the Prophet ﷺ, even going back to his pre-Islamic experience, meaning pre-revelation experience, that even in the youth, when he was forced to go out, and he was in the battlefield, now what is he going to do? So the Prophet ﷺ engaged in the activity that could be called at-tanabbul. At-tanabbul. Which they would basically have mutanabbilun. They would have people who were given this responsibility. And what that, what that responsibility, what that word means is, it comes from nabal. Nabal basically refers to arrowheads. Nabal refers to arrowheads. And what that responsibility or those people that were given that responsibility, what their job would be, what that would mean is that some of the some of the people in the battlefield, as the arrows would fall from the enemy side, and in fact what's interesting historically, and this would later on this will later on become very relevant when we talk about one of the last battles from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, when we talk about one of the final Ghazawat, which was Ghazwatul Hunain, which was Ghazwatul Hunain in which they fought the Muslims fought against the tribes of Hawazin and Thaqif. This, this will become relevant there. The tribes of Hawazin and Thaqif were known for their archery. Quraysh was known for their bravery, for their valor, for their sword fighting skills. Alright, and they were very, very brave and very proud of their sword fighting skills. While the tribes of Hawazin and Thaqif were expert archers. Not just marksmen. Not just simply marksmen, but they were also expert archers in the sense that they were strategists. They had a very, very uh, interesting strategy where they would create files and ranks and flanks and they would basically in, they had like a sequence. They were synchronized where they would launch different rows, would launch arrows at different times. So basically at all times you had arrows coming down and while the others were launching, then they would reload. And so it was like this automatic system where from wherever you were, there were arrows coming at you from all sides constantly. So it was a very, very uh, interesting strategy and it made them very difficult to fight. So now that these arrows were falling in abundance, so the Quraysh decided that we needed we need some people to basically pick up these arrows because they're just launching arrows, that's their strategy. So a lot of the arrows are just falling on the ground and they're perfectly serviceable. Alright, these arrows are serviceable. We can pick them up and relaunch them back over to the other side. So they needed somebody to run around and gather the arrows and come and stack them up and line them up so that the warriors could then take these arrows and launch them back over. So it's, you know, kind of making the best of a bad situation. So the Prophet ﷺ is there, he was forced to be there, now he's being expected to do something, and he's got that pressure on him. So the Prophet ﷺ as a last resort said, okay, how about I just pick up arrows? I'm just gonna pick up arrows, I'm just gonna bring them, I'm just gonna put them here in the stack of arrows. And that's basically what the Prophet ﷺ did for some time during that day, until the day finally ended, and then the Prophet ﷺ left again. And that was basically the entire experience of the Prophet ﷺ in this Harbul Fijar. But like I said, this left a very, very deep impact on the Prophet ﷺ. So a lot of the, you know, what we could literally call the Islamic philosophy, 
You know, the attitude of the Prophet ﷺ towards battlefield, towards war, towards battle. Now somebody might say, but didn't so many ghazwat take place during the Medinan period, during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ? Yes, they did. But it does not change the fact that the vast majority of the ghazawat, of the actual battles from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, the Medinan period, where the vast majority of them were defensive battles. And they were situ- even the ones that could be argued were somewhat offensive, and even some scholars have debated that nevertheless, even if they were offensive, but though even those offensive battles were, the Muslims were basically catapulted and were forced into those situations. It was a defense mechanism nevertheless. Even an offensive battle, even an offensive attack can be a defense mechanism, can be basically motivated from self-preservation. And the Prophet ﷺ had very little to no interest in actual bloodshed. And we see this attitude of the Prophet ﷺ on multiple occasions. Where the Ghazwat Tabuk, which was one of the most major displays of Muslim might. That the Prophet ﷺ, that you know, so many thousands of Muslims march out and basically make a display and make a show and they camp out. And what do they do? They end up returning back without a single drop of blood being shed. They, they, they come back without engaging in full-scale war. We look at Fatih Makkah. Alright, where they march out and they have every opportunity to shed blood. But what ends up happening? The, the second Abu Sufyan comes to the Prophet ﷺ and says, we'd like to surrender. Okay, ahlan wa sahlan. Marhaban bikum. He welcomes the opportunity. Sulih Hudaybiyah. Where the, uh, literally hours ago, the Prophet ﷺ has taken an oath from Sahaba under the tree. لَقَدَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ يُبَايُعُونَكَ تَحْتَ شَجَرَةً Right, that taken an oath under a tree that we'll fight to our last breath. We're ready to fight. And we're ready to do whatever it takes, whatever you ask of us. But the second the opportunity presents itself to engage and to enter into some type of treaty, the Prophet welcomes the opportunity. Even the Usara Badr, which we know that the Quranic ayat and the Quranic injunction later on reprimanded the Prophet That the Prophet was reprimanded because of his decision with the prisoners of war in Badr. That he decided to release them with ransom. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, no, you should have set some type of an example, and you should have sent a message to the people of Quraysh. And then Uhud was consequently, the, 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 what was a consequence, was an outcome or a result, was a response to Badr. Which, you know, of course everything is in the divine plan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that they were meant to be released, and then Uhud was meant to happen. But nevertheless, the Qur'anic ayat are there where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Prophet ﷺ that this is what would have been another course of action. And if you would have taken that course of action, it would have made Uhud very unlikely. So we see repeatedly throughout the life of the Prophet ﷺ that the Prophet ﷺ had an aversion to actual bloodshed. That, you know, one thing, we have a lot of emphasis. Because, you know, it's also very motivating, it's very inspiring, and at times it's also miraculous, the stories about how angels are coming down, and the miracles that take place in the battlefield, and the very miraculous victories that Muslims were able to achieve during those ghazawat, those battles from the life of the Prophet ﷺ. But what doesn't get highlighted enough is what the Prophet ﷺ would do the night before the battle. The Prophet would engage in dua. And he would pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for safety, for forgiveness, for protection. That the Prophet of Allah sometimes even during the actual battlefield, the Prophet could be found making dua, and engaging in the dhikr and the tasbih of Allah, praising and glorifying Allah, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for afiyah, for protection.
When the Prophet ﷺ would be requested to curse people, to damn people, to doom people, to pray upon people, may they be destroyed. Even in the battlefield, the Prophet ﷺ would pray for their guidance and then would reprimand his own companions. That how dare you ask me to curse people. That's not why I was sent, that's not my job, that's not why I do. I was sent as a mercy. Because the Prophet ﷺ early on, in his early adulthood, during his teenage years, the Prophet ﷺ was able to see the evil of war. He was able to see the evil of battle. And even when the Muslims did engage or had to engage, and there was no other um, politi- politically speaking, realistically speaking, there was no other option but to engage in battle, the Prophet ﷺ still very, very emphatically, very, very, um, with a lot of emphasis, the Prophet ﷺ would you know, um, advise the Sahaba. He would emphasize to the Sahaba the importance of ethics and morals even in battle. You know, the, the, the ethics and the morals of even engaging in war and battle. The Prophet ﷺ emphasized them. That respecting, you know, having respect for your deen. Like the Qur'anic injunction about if somebody says salam to you, don't say that you're not a believer. There were situations during the life of the Prophet ﷺ where, you know, Sahaba were trying to basically clear out an area and they were trying to make sure that you know there wasn't anyone sneaking or hiding or trying to ambush the Sahaba and they found some guys, some people and when the Sahaba started to approach them they were like, Salaamu Alaikum, Salaamu Alaikum, Salaamu Alaikum and some of the Sahaba were like, no, 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 that's a kappa you're just trying to get out of this situation and they ended up attacking them Right? In one, one, one situation, they actually ended up killing some of them. In another situation, they ended up taking them prisoner. In both situations, the Prophet ﷺ reprimanded the Sahaba. Said, how dare you do that? If they give you salam, you have no right to say that they're not believers. Those types of ethics and morals were in place. And so, that was because the Prophet ﷺ had witnessed war, had witnessed battle early on in his years that was done harbul fijar was very sacrilegious was very offensive it was very inappropriate it lacked any type of morals and ethics and so the prophet was so turned off by that overall experience that that had left an impact on the prophet of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam now that harbul fijar now i talked about how that lasted overall for 5 years when that ended up happening was eventually after 5 years that the leader of the Quraysh throughout this battle was a man by the name of Harb bin Umayyah. And Harb bin Umayyah, it's mentioned that he was, one of the narrations actually mentions that he was actually killed during one of these days of fighting. But eventually later on, there's, it mentions that eventually the Quraysh and the Hawazin, Banu Kinana and Hawazin, they basically, Banu Qais bin, bin uh, Aylan, they basically sat down eventually at the end of this five years and they said, تقاتلون, Why are we even fighting? Do we even remember why we're fighting? And so Hawazin said, ما إليه, what, what, what do you propose? They had both grown tired of this situation. So the Quraysh said, As-Sulh. Why don't we just you know, settle this? Why don't we have some type of a treaty? So he said, how are we going to settle this matter? So they said that, alright, we've killed some of your people and you've killed some of our people. We will end up forgiving any, peop- any of our people that were killed. We don't want any blood money. We don't want any retribution. We don't want anything in return or in consequence. We go ahead and we forgive it. We're re- willing to put all that aside. 
and we would just like to move on. Hawazin, they end up similarly saying that, and actually the Quraysh offered to Hawazin that, you know, we'll, we'll offer the blood money on behalf of the very first person who was killed, because that's what started this entire situation. Then some of the narrations mentioned that um, the people of Hawazin ended up saying that, you know what, we're not really interested in anything as well, we would just like to put this all aside and be able to move on. And so they ended up forgiving them for any indiscretions on their part. Hawazin ends up forgiving any indiscretions on their part, and they end up saying, all right, Let's put all this aside, let's everybody go back to our lives, why were you even fighting? It made no sense, this was silly, this was stupid, it was ridiculous. One qadat, harbul fijar. And that's how the sacrilegious wars eventually ended. And they basically went on to living their lives. The next thing that's mentioned in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ was naturally a consequence of this sacrilegious war. Because people had grown so tired for five years they engaged in a war that was started inappropriately, that they couldn't even remember why this was started, they didn't understand why it was started, that eventually this created the sentiment within the people where they wanted to move on and they didn't want to have any such type of experience ever again. And so a very profound experience of the Prophet ﷺ, again, young adulthood, early adulthood, and part of his pre-revelation life, which is called Hilful Fudul. It's called Hilful Fudul, which basically refers to uh, a very noble treaty, a very virtuous pact that the people of that, the Quraysh um, entered into. And the Prophet ﷺ was actually a witness to this. He was able to experience this. This is what we'll talk about inshallah in next week's session, which was a consequence of the Harbul Fijar, the sacrilegious wars. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to properly learn and understand and benefit from the life of the Messenger ﷺ. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.